Welcome to episode 140 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Here we are, back at it again. Back behind the mics. I love Sunday afternoon when we get behind the mics, just chatting theology, making jokes, drinking coffee. It's good stuff. (laughs) Making jokes? We make jokes sometimes. (laughs) That's true. I guess by saying we make jokes doesn't necessarily indicate where those jokes are actually funny. Oh, yeah. Most of the time they're not. Yeah, we were definitely falling flat. I feel like I have to bring this up. Can we, can I just, can we just bring out the elephant that's in the room that only you and I can see right now? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I think you know where I'm going. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. I just want to say that apparently speaking of bad jokes, yeah. On your end, are you at a gun show? (laughs) Because I see that you're wearing a muscle shirt and this is, doesn't just any muscle shirt. (laughs) You've actually got our faces, the Reformed Brotherhood logo on this killer muscle shirt. Yeah. And you're bringing out those bad boys. I guess it's, what, what, isn't there like a saying like, uh, sun's out, guns out? I guess. It's definitely Is that what the kids say there. these days? I, I think some kids. Yeah. Those are, those kids are dumb. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just cut the sleeves off of one of my shirts because we went for a, like a hike today on the Lord's Day to, to get outside and spend some time in nature and celebrating God's goodness. So, and it was, it was, you see, you drew me right into the weather cast. It's your fault. It was like 80 <sighs> degrees out. I'm and sorry. I was like, I can't wear a t-shirt. I got to get something a little bit, a little bit breezier than that. What's funny is I intended to bring this up for two reasons. One, because I want to peel back the curtain a little bit, let people know this is how serious you are about this podcast, that you felt like the sleeves on your t-shirt were just too restrictive <laughs> that the arms need to be out. But the second thing I really just want to say right now is how dare you, how, how dare, dare you? you spiritualize something I thought was just going to be straight funny. <laughs> That's my goal is, is anytime you are going to try to be funny, I, I have to make it spiritual. I mean, that was great. You ca- it wasn't even like a straight up Jesus juke, but I love that you were just like, listen, for me to really relax and Sabbath on the Lord's Day, <laughs> I need to let these arms out. They yeah. just need to be, they need to be free like my soul. <laughs> <laughs> There's some Sabbatarian somewhere, somewhere that's like, <sighs> <laughs> but But you know what? You bring up a really great point, theologically speaking. That is, can we say we're really Sabbathing when our arms are restricted? I mean, really... <laughs> There needs to be a freedom there. All right, let's move on now. <laughs> so, so let's get to some affirmations. I'm going to let you talk first. What are you affirming? So um, I'm affirming drinking beer in a children's museum. So uh, yesterday, my okay. work, yesterday being Saturday, uh, my work, uh, I work in a gastroenterology office and we have oh, yeah. a pretty extensive uh, gastroenterology fellowship. So every year when we do graduation, we rent out the local like children's science museum and we have a barbecue. And so we were all walking around playing with like science experiments, drinking beer in a children's That's museum. Cool. And I got to admit, it felt a little bit weird. Like I kept on looking around, like waiting for someone to tell me I can't do it. But it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, do you want to share some of these like science experiments that you were messing with? Uh, yeah, my favorite is it's like, uh, uh, I forget what they call it. I think it's called an Aeolian landscape 
where it's like a big it's like a big container self-contained thing with like really fine sand and then like a powerful fan and so as you turn the fan it creates like sandscapes and dunes and stuff so that one's my favorite i think they also have ones that simulate like the clouds of jupiter with like turbulent uh turbulent forces when the when you spin it so i like it it was a good time you are a renaissance man i don't think i am i don't know i feel like you you've got varied interests and you're into a lot of things. Yeah. That's my definition of if Renaissance that's, man. That's, if that's what a Renaissance man is, I guess, <laughs> then that's me. What about you? What are you affirming? When I think of affirmations when we put this stuff together, oftentimes I'm drawn to the question, what do I think is underrated in life? Yes. So that's where this affirmation is coming from. So hear me out on this because I have to explain a little bit. I'm affirming this week foot massagers. Okay. Not these giant, like bulky ones. I'm talking about you can go onto Amazon and get these really sweet little, I'm talking about like the little wooden dowel massagers that you kind of just rub your foot yeah. under or over rather. And there's one in particular. This is what I'm going to recommend. It's called, if you go to Amazon and look up this weird combination of words I'm about to give you, you'll find it. It's called Body Back Companies Wooden Foot Roller. <laughs> Body back companies, wooden foot roller. So it's this like little foot roller, like a dowel that you can just put on the floor and roll. But it also comes with what they call a porcupine ball. It's this tiny little ball with like the rubber spikes on it. <laughs> you're way into this. You're so you're so I'm, excited about this. Listen, if I, I feel like if I can't get behind it, I just can't affirm it. So I have one of these things. This is 10 bucks, $10. And th- having a nice little foot massage that you give yourself is so underrated. That's why I'm affirming it because... I have it under my desk right now. You can't see me, but I'm getting a, a really nice foot massage right now <laughs> as I'm talking to you. And I, I'm a runner, yes. uh, so this feels particularly good. But if you have feet and you use them, this is just so nice. You can stick it under your desk at work. It's really tiny. You can travel with it. But I'm telling you, this seems like a simple tool, and they both are. It's literally a plastic ball with spikes on it and a wooden dowel that's ribbed. But it feels so good. Like, if you haven't had your feet rubbed and you're weird like I am where you don't want somebody just coming up and touching your feet. This is perfect and it feels so good. So I'm affirming this body back company's wooden foot roller. It'll be among the best $10 you've ever spent. Nice. Nice. We'll, we'll, we'll see if I can find that and put a link to it in the show notes. Are you, are you like a massage person though? Like would yeah. you be down Have you've got massages before? Yeah. I, it's not like my favorite thing to do and it's, it's usually more expensive than it's worth to do on a regular basis, but it's nice once in a while. The last time I got a massage, I like fell asleep in the middle of it, which <laughs> is fine. Like you don't have to be awake for it, but I was really, really relaxed. <laughs> so it was nice. Was it a good experience though? Like when yeah. you were done, were you like, that was awesome? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I have like shoulder problems and back problems. So it's nice once in a while to go and like have someone who knows what they're doing and like knows how the muscles in your back works, like work that out. So. Okay. Well, this is exactly like that. Except for your exactly. feet. Except for your there feet. You and you do it yourself. Nice. <laughs> All right. So what about denials? So my denial is a little bit serious again this week. So I'll give you time to get a more serious denial if you want, since you're always <laughs> complaining that mine are super serious and yours it's, are. It's already too late for not. me. Save yourself. So I, um, this is going to be one of those ones that might be a little bit of a dividing line for our um, audience. I don't think so, though. So oh, interesting. Have you ever heard of Kyle Howard? Yes. So Kyle Howard is one of those people who um, is sort of on the woke train. Like he's he's sort of he's kind of a social justice spokesperson. 
Um, it's a little bit strange because he comes from a, a pretty affluent family, so I'm not sure how much uh, real, like actual oppression he suffered. But I'm going to read these um, this series of tweets, and you can tell that this was done using like a tweet storm software because they're numbered. And this is in response to David Platt praying for President Trump, who just showed up at his church one Sunday. Uh, okay, I'm with you. And he says, uh, this is the first, uh, the first one here. I'll just read them all. I know y'all mean well. I honestly, before the Lord, have no beef with any of you. But seeing all the retweets and praise of Platt praying for Trump was hard yesterday. That man has cost my family everything. Our church, friends, a ton of trauma, etc. David Platt was faithful. He is a faithful man of God. He did nothing wrong praying for the president. He legit didn't. At the same time, though, this is why my family can't be in your churches, because your churches are places where a president like Trump will show up and be prayed for. I'm just going to pause there. Shouldn't our churches be somewhere that a president like Trump would show up and pray, be prayed for? For sure. Uh, and then he says, it's not about what Platt said. It's about the culture. Evangelical churches are places where at any moment y'all will traumatize us. And it's such a non-category. It's not even considered. I don't think anyone thought, how will this hit our black and Hispanic members? My place of worship has to be a safe space. It has to be a place where my pastors know there is too much pain here due to the things this man has said and done. He's a welcome guest, but I can't force my congregation to pray for him out of the blue like this with no warning. Don't get it twisted. I pray for the president. I pray for our leaders. I pray regularly for our country's leaders. But every time I've seen that video, it has hit me harder than I want to speak on here. I can't imagine what it would have been like actually being there. Thought hurts. And then he goes on to basically say, like, if you criticize me or you say I'm being less spiritual, I'm going to block you. So my my beef with this, uh, I have a couple beefs with this, but my beef with this, mostly when I read this, it said my place of worship has to be a safe space. And here's what I started to think about is only in the United States could we even have time to fight about this issue because right nowhere on. else in the world besides like the Western world is the church a safe space. Like people are afraid to meet in their, they're afraid of their leaders showing up, not because they want to be prayed for, but because their leaders might throw them in prison. So, right. I mean, I I'm sure, I'm sure that Mr. Howard has, um, uh, how do I say this in a way that's not disrespectful? Um, this whole idea that the president has cost his family everything. I would really like to see how that's the case. Um, because as far as I can tell, um, Kyle Howard is actually still a pretty successful person who has a family and a job and uh, has a burgeoning kind of social media presence. He's kind of an influencer. So I would really like to see what he actually has lost as a result of President Trump. And I'm not saying this to be political, but it just seems like um, this whole and we're going to we're going to get into this topic a little bit tonight, I think. This whole like intersectionality thing has really just undercut what it meant, what it means to be a Christian. And it, it it's totally like moved the bar on how we have any sort of rational discourse. So I just think that as Christians, like, why would you have to warn your congregation that you're going to pray for somebody? Like, isn't that part of what it is to like if they're already praying for the for the president every week, if they're praying for the country's leaders every week like they should be, then why would it be somehow traumatizing uh, for that person to actually be present? And like this is what just drives me nuts is he says um, he says stuff like 
that's why we can't be in your churches because you traumatize us and it's not, it's a non-category. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever traumatized somebody in our church for anything. Like I, I, I don't understand what he's even talking about. Right. So what, right. what do you think? So my first thought is that I had no idea that the responses to what Platt did there were going to be so varied and nuanced. Yeah. And I think that does speak to what you've just said before that we really have the time and the circumstances by God's good grace to even have this kind of conversation that's really nuanced about what he did. So I'm a little bit out of my death because I presume that what he's saying there, what Howard is saying there is speaking from a place of pain and hurt, which is perhaps in some ways legitimate. And I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, I agree with what you're saying. It's almost like the place of worship for most of the world for the plurality of the world is decidedly not a place of peace yeah. in the sense that it's not a safe place. It's actually the opposite of a safe place right. because you're actually putting yourself in harm's way to be obedient, to gather on the Lord's day. So that by itself, it seems like there's just a lot of parts in that, that I'm just not understanding. And I'm sure there are things that he's saying there that are perhaps very legitimate, but it's sim- it's very just confusing. Yeah. And I, I simply cannot really understand what he's really trying to drive out there. It sounds like there, here's just a man that's been hurt. And that there are things that he's processing still, and it's hard for him to, to wrap his mind around how a culture could so willingly embrace that kind of prayer at the spur of the moment. But in many ways, I think that that's exactly what the church should be. And it, yeah. the church should be the kind of loving, flexible place, an accountable place where the president does happen to walk in and you're just like, yeah, like we're going to drop everything and we're going to pray right yeah. now. Yeah, because here, here we have men making significant decisions on behalf of a large amount of people, and the most appropriate thing that we can do is to stop everything we're doing and really seek God's favor, seek His guidance, seek His judgment, even with this man in the room with us. So, yeah. aside from just what was said, which I still would totally agree with, I thought that David Platt was like really composed. I think there was a lot of lot that happened there that was spirit led. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know Kyle Howard. I've never had a direct interaction with him. Um, uh, He strikes me as a person that genuinely loves the Lord and wants to to love people well. Exactly. But but this whole like victim mentality, like there are there are real victims in the world. And maybe Kyle Howard is a real victim in some sense. But I, I just don't this whole like language of like. You all, all you evangelicals, you white evangelicals have, you could traumatize us at any minute. It's like, well, where's, where's the unity of the Holy Spirit in all of this? Like, where is the unity of the spirit where this idea that like, you're, you're somehow afraid of me just because I'm a white, I'm a white male, like a white sort of like middle-class male. How is that not in itself a form of racism? And that's, that's the problem with some of this like neo-critical like race theory stuff is it actually is reinforcing. We talked about this when we talked about the um, social justice statement, it's reinforcing these um, like these divisions between, between different classes and races and categories it's reinforcing them rather than seeking to break them down and that's like part and parcel of this new work church moment is they they aren't seeking equality they're actually seeking to recognize these different classes and trying to bring those classes into some sort of alignment but because it's resting and i know that this is controversial but it's resting on this sort of uh, neo-marxist foundation philosophical foundation 
it, it really is about power struggles. And like, that's the exact opposite about how Christians should be thinking about how we interact with yes. each other. It shouldn't be about who's in power over who. And I know, like, I can already hear all the woke advocates saying, well, of course, it's easy for you to say that you're a white guy, you have all the power. But like, I don't, I don't have any power over most of these people. So I just don't really understand I don't understand what the like what the end game is for some of these this movement is what's what's the actual objective and what does it have to do with like unity in the spirit and the for like the advancement of the gospel in the world. Right. And this is one of those things that at least from my perspective can become so crazy nuanced that it tends to lose a lot of its meaning. And then I feel like you can have some of these conversations, but it becomes so detailed as in like, well, that's not really exactly what I meant. I right. mean, really this particular thing that it kind of just kind of loses all sense of color and context. And I don't know if, if this is the case where I mean, you're absolutely right that this, this kind of underpinning of Marxism, which by, I mean, it, first of all, I think people have to be careful when they appropriate that term either explicitly or tacitly, because right. if you read Marx, there's like a lot of scary things that Marx writes in terms of really trying to, I mean, he's trying to basically promote a type of class warfare. And it's, I, I strike, it strikes me when I've read his works that it's not often all the times entirely altruistic. Yeah. There's a lot of embedded violence and hatred and it definitely promotes, he definitely promotes a stereotyping where it's end. He says his piece but I'm not even sure that that's really what he, he actually intended when he wrote those things. And so that by itself is in complete opposition to the gospel and com in complete opposition to the model that Jesus Christ himself sets forward, which is right. to give up all your rights. Yeah. There's, Marx is assuredly about asserting your rights. And in fact, saying that you have rights that have been taken from you and not granted, and therefore you need to take them back by yeah. whatever means are necessary for the most part, which includes some kind of violent overthrow. Right. And so that to me is just, of course, opposite the, the gospel. But the second thing would be what you were saying, and that is we tend to promote this system in which it's us and them, and we just keep choosing who the them is. We just kind of rotate in this endless circle of finding a target yeah. that is somebody outside of us, even in our own Christian circle. So we need to figure out by looking to Jesus Christ himself how to love each other better. And yeah. that, it's no surprise, I guess, that that's the command that God gave us. How wonderful that when he said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he didn't stop there because if he had stopped there, we'd be going in this direction, which was, hey, listen, I'm doing my best to love God. Like, who cares about everybody else? Yeah. I just need to focus all my attention on God. Um, but he says, like, here's the second thing is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's easier to love God and to kind of have this sanctimonious attitude that tries to wrap some kind of spiritual veneer on your loving your neighbor where you're doing a really poor job. At least I've had that in my experience, yeah. my own heart. It's really hard to make the connection between, Hey, you know what loving my neighbor means? It means like being super gracious and compassionate to somebody like David Platt in a situation like this, because that's what it means to be bonded in the spirit. Like my default normative position is to reach out in grace and loving kindness and love, even in how I, I like reserve judgment especially in an online venue yeah. rather than coming hard against it and trying to draw like these distinctions of class or race. And again, I'm the first to admit that I'm, I'm out of my depth here yeah. because I, I live a pretty uh, privileged life. At the same time, uh, we, I just think we need to be, we need to be modeling something that's really drastic and radical. And that I think is more inclusiveness in how we look to one another in those in the family of God. And the last thing I'll say real quick to close it out is there's also a difference in my mind between acceptance and agreement. So if what Howard is, is confused here is that David Platt is somehow agreeing with Trump. 
I think what David Platt is being accepting of somebody who's come into his church yeah. and has is willingly, volitionally said, I, I'm willing to accept prayer for me. And there's a difference. Again, there's acceptance that I think he's demonstrating there and not necessarily agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, I don't want to like bog this down because this could turn into a whole episode on its own, but it, it just seems like um, the Christian church or large quarters of the Western evangelical church has sort of become obsessed with identifying the other and overcoming it. Yes, and that, that goes exactly. for both, um, both people who have some legitimately racist views um, or some legitimately oppressive views, but also for this sort of reactionary movement that's, that's called the woke church. Like that is still also about overcoming the other. And, and what I think is the problem is that this woke church movement doesn't recognize that they're actually just feeding into the, the cycle. I mean, I'll call it this, like it's a cycle of violence. Like it's not physical violence, but it is this cycle of aggression and violence and, and conflict that they're not, they're not doing anything to, to like remediate. They're just feeding into it and trying to, they're trying to just change who's in power. And it really, I don't know how to stop it. I don't know what we do to make it stop, but we just, you know, it just really makes me sad. And then there's nothing that I don't think there's anything else that could be said about it right now. No, I agree with you. So what are you denying? Well, man, it's a good thing that I can bring some levity now (laughs) back into the conversation because once again, not a very serious denial, although this is a serious denial to me. I'm in this. Once again, I think it's going to breed some controversy, maybe even more controversy than what we were just speaking about. And that's because I'm denying against chicken on the bone. Okay. I know that people are going to say it makes the chicken more moist and more delicious. And I just don't care, frankly. I <laughs> do not. I cannot handle the chicken on the bone. And I, I, I understand chickens have bones and that, you know, again, living a nice, cushy, privileged life, I don't have to deal with the bone and the chicken. But I'm just a cutlet dude, I guess. And I'm, yeah. or, or nuggets. Nuggets are legit. Um, I would definitely rock some some nugs. I, I think that what came this came to the like the zenith of my denial for this particular thing this week because I saw an article where apparently there's a very famous place in the South that makes this Nashville hot chicken, and they make it in a sandwich, but the sandwich is made with bone-in chicken, and I was like, no, I just can't. No, even if I could do the like the chicken on the bone outside the sandwich. Yeah. Why are you putting the bone in the sandwich? This just seems like impractical. Oh, they like, put the so bone in... in the sandwich. That oh, seems yeah, like a lawsuit it... just waiting to happen. Yeah. So it's chicken on the bone in a sandwich. Like that is the meat in the sandwich. And they make the case like, oh, it's so tender. It's really juicy. Like that. This is the only way to make it because it just adds like a another like pinnacle of flavor and consistency to the meat. I just, I just can't get behind that. Like, I just want to deny that all day and twice on the Lord's day. Yeah. That's but, no good. Yeah. Like I said, that seems like just a recipe to get, uh, sued when someone chomps down on that and breaks their tooth. Well, I mean, apparently like they, of course, make it known to you that, yo, this sandwich, it's got a giant bone in it, Yeah. <laughs> but it just like impractical, right? Like when you're eating a sandwich, you want to go headlong into that sandwich without reservation without worrying that you're going to have to fight off bonage. So yeah, I just, sorry, I'm, I'm getting fired up. I'm already getting sweaty now. So (laughs) (laughs) we should probably probably just transition to a topic that I'm glad you suggested we speak about because 
we've talked about this before, but it, it's kind of come back up in the news it has. in lots of different ways. Yeah. So what what kind of direction were you thinking? Like, what's on your mind with respect to complementarianism? Yeah. So I think that there are two things that happen. And, and this, we'll talk about it, but this same kind of... Um, this same kind of rhetoric that's being used by the woke church is now being employed in a more vigorous way by advocates of egalitarianism um, in ways that I haven't seen in the past. So I, I, in one sense, the debate over women in ministry, roles in the house, all the things that tie into complementarianism is very, very old, but it does seem like we're entering kind of a new phase. And so I think it bears kind of talking through a little bit what exactly we think the scripture teaches, how is it that we justify our views, those kinds of things. But right. I want to start off with just a little uh, a little sample of uh, kind of what reignited this. So there was a, an interaction with um, Owen Strand, who is a, an EFS or an Eternal Functional Subordination Advocate. So we should start off by saying we don't support the underlying theology that he uses to justify his conclusions. But we probably, for the most part, agree with most of his conclusions. Um, but he does use the doctrine of the Trinity as kind of a prop to, to like hold up his complementarianism, which I don't think is biblical and I don't think is necessary. But he um, he got into it with Beth Moore, who, who basically said like... Uh, any woman that you would approve of is someone who should be terrified. Like she, she used this victim oppressed mentality that we, we were talking about to sort of like paint Owen out as though he was the aggressor and as though he is sort of this evil man who's oppressing women and like his, his, his voice shouldn't be listened to because he's in the, the power class. Um, and it led to this really long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this really long, um, tirade from Beth Moore on Twitter. I mean, it was it was a long day for her. And this is the one that really caught my attention. And this is kind of uh, a little bit in it's like the third or fourth in the, the chain here. She says, I'm compelled by my or to my bones by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be but I am to draw attention to the sexism and misogyny that is rampant in segments of the SBC cloaked by piety and bearing the stench of hypocrisy. There are countless godly conservative complementarians. Um, and then she says, uh, she, it, the, the tweet kind of cuts off. It looks like she got, it got broken up and I'm not sending the other one, but the point is that she's arguing more or less that the Holy spirit is kind of inspiring her and the way that she's using the language, she's, she's clearly drawing from language like Jeremiah, I'm compelled to my bones. So she's painting herself out to be like this prophet that's coming to bring judgment upon the SBC to call them to repentance and account. And the problem is that there are real voices within the SBC right now. Um, and then we have uh, the PCA General Assembly is going to be sued. There are real voices in the PCA that are advocating for a an inclusion of women in in ordained office. And Beth Moore has been preaching in SBC churches, which is contrary to the SBC standards um, for a long time. So this came into the news because of this. And I just think, you know, a lot of Christians who are conservative don't really know the biblical arguments for why this is. And they, right. they fall prey to not only sort of not being able to explain their view, but since they can't explain their view and justify it from the scripture, they also fall prey to some of the more uh, problematic variants of complementarianism, namily the EFS um, error. So I wanted yes. to just sort of talk through 
how it is that we come to our conclusion, what the biblical texts are, and why it is that we hold the views we do. I love this. So let me start by saying, here's how I would explain complementarism, like how I understand it in a very simple way to somebody who would ask. So for me, as I understand the scriptures, complementarism is the view that men and women are equal as God's fellow image bearers and not, but, but, and have some differences of role in the church and home. So it means, as I understand the scriptures, again, that men and women are equal, but they're not interchangeable. You can't just simply swap male and female in and out of different roles without any kind of consequence, nor are the differences between male and female mere just matters of anatomy. But even that's under attack in our day and age. But it's more than that. It's structural. It's physiological. These are all differences that may be less apparent, but they are very real. So I assume, well, I know that you're going to agree with me on this. And that is the first thing I want to say to anybody who's listening to this has been following these types of debates and is just maybe against this model for whatever reason is that let me first just off the top say that complementarianism, like any other view, should not be judged by its abuse. So yes. I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that have said really horrible things under this type of mantra and have used it or appropriated it to oppose or impose some kind of judgment or violence upon somebody else. Right. I would encourage everybody not to judge it by what it, how it's been abused. And so we must oppose, as like much as any egalitarian, the misuse of male strength that was very common in ancient cultures and is still prevalent today. Right. I mean, I recognize that many human cultures have indeed perpetrated systems and environments in which women have been denigrated, downplayed, or devalued. But here's the bottom line, like before we even just get into the scriptures, this is kind of the challenge or like my thesis for like our conversation. And that is, whereas like egalitarianism tries to redress this problem by taking away the principle of male held, held, headship, can't even say that, altogether, <laughs> complementarianism does so by radically redefining it in light of the gospel. Right. And that's the huge difference here. And that's where we get into like Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So this means, I would say like at the outset of our conversation, like complementarianism is a call to die, to love and to serve. And that's where I see like the big differences. And I think a lot of times this vitriolic speak that happens in the interweb space is based on judging these systems by their abuse rather than getting a clear sense of what the scriptures say and why you and I are saying this is what the Bible teaches. Yeah. So where do you want to kick us off then? If we're going to the scriptures, where do you see is like a kind of a primary center of gravity to start with complementarianism? Yeah. Well, before we do that, I want to just add, um, you know, there is a range of complementarianism, right? Sure. And so, you know, we've already identified what I think is kind of an extreme end that actually roots, um, I think, unwittingly, people like Owen Strand, people like uh, Doug Wilson, um, in some senses, people like John Piper, that roots uh, complementarianism in such a fundamental ontological difference between men and women that in in principle they actually are of a different nature entirely so you have you have this um this view that and then then that's where they root this in the trinity right i don't john piper has not come out and said anything specifically that accords with efs but as far as the circles he runs in um he seems to be in that group and he's never kind of spoken against wayne grudem he was a co-editor of the original volume that that this theology kind of presented itself in. On the other side, you have people who want to root complementarianism exclusively in God's positive law. And what I mean when I say positive law is 
there's God's natural moral law, right? There's things that are right. that are moral or immoral because of the way that the universe is created, because of who God is. That that God, if God was to create, there are certain constraints on how God creates and what God creates and the way he arranges the universe exclusively because of who he is. So he couldn't create a universe in which in which murder is a moral good, for example. So there are people who would root um, complementarianism in the natural law, right? That's the John Piper, Owen Strand uh, part of the spectrum. And then there's people who would root it exclusively in positive law. And positive law is God's positive commands, not necessarily positive, like do this kind of commands, but positive commands in that they are positively added to the moral law. It doesn't mean that those commands are any less obligatory or less a matter of morals, but they have to do with how we understand the laws in relation to God's nature. And I think, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you and I would probably fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum where we want to acknowledge that there are differences between men and women that uh, right. go beyond just biology. Um, some right. of them are rooted in biology, right? You mentioned that males tend to have statistically have a greater physical capacity for strength. Um, but some of it is in sort of what you might call like features of the spirit or features of the soul where men, yes. men tend to be less emotionally driven. Uh, women tend to be more nurturing and more attached to children. So there are these differences that uh, philosophically we might call accidental differences, meaning that they're not a part of the human nature, right? They're, they're something that is a part of the being of a person, but it's an addition to the nature. And so I would want to root uh, the roles that men and women can and cannot play primarily in God's positive law, but recognizing that these accidental differences that are part of the constitution of, of statistically most men and statistically most women, those are also a part of the consideration. So I wouldn't want to go so far as to say outside of the church and the home, men and women are 100% interchangeable, right? So some people right. would say that in like the area of business or military or something like that. I don't want to go to that end of the ex extreme, but I also wouldn't want to go to like the John Piper end of the extreme where women are not capable of serving in any kind of leadership role because leadership is actually at odds with the very definition of what it means to be a woman. I just don't, right. I don't think that the scriptures do, uh, prove that out. And I don't think experience proves that out. I don't think logic proves that out. So I don't see any reason to believe that to be the case. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we clarify that before we go into the text that we're not, we're not on one end of that spectrum or the other. I think there are mistakes that happen on both sides. I totally agree. I mean, just like anything else, when you get to, into those extremes, you're going to be prone to fall into all kinds of error. And, and this is like another just good example of the stuff we talked about before, where theology is just so important. It actually matters. It matters like in real life, in interactions, in relationships, in the church. Because in many respects, this idea of juxtaposing egalitarianism and complementarianism is a family discussion. It's an in-house discussion. Right. And so what's crazy about this is I think sometimes like when we even when we talk about it, this idea of the eternal functional subordination controversy, people, there is a tendency to see that as somehow just really esoteric and right. very heady. And yet at the end of the day, what many people are talking about online, these you know, leaders in our faith, when you ask them, well, why is it that you hold this view? Why, why are the outworkings must be coming from somewhere? Where, where is that? They are actually theological in nature and origin, and they're arising mainly from this false analogy between the subordination of wives to husbands and that of God the Son to God the Father. Right. And that's why it matters to understand this stuff, because I'm in complete solidarity with those who reject the eternal subordination of the Son in any form. 
because I believe no amount of nuance or affirmation of Christ's deity can preserve it from functionally reproducing the Arian position. Right. That, that's that's just the bottom line. Yep, absolutely. And and for those like who are, are wanting like a quick refresher on that, we talked about this before at length. You can go find it in our catalog. But Arianism is that Christological heresy that asserts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is begotten by God the Father at a point in time and is a distinct creature from the Father and therefore is subordinate to him. Right. That sounds on the face super abstract. And yet that really is what's happening here when people say, Well, why do you think that what, where are you getting this pattern from? They're saying, Look at the Trinity. Right. That that's why wives need to um you know, submit to their husbands. And so it's just so important to wrap ourselves around, which is why I'm glad we're going to finally get into the scripture without any more delay from me. Yeah. So most of the time when people want to go to the scriptures to talk about complementarianism, they start with Paul's teaching in the New Testament. Um, But I think that's actually the wrong place to start. So I'm going to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter two, because if we want to understand how it is that men and women ought to function together in the church, uh, and I don't mean in the church as in church office, but I mean Christians in who are members of the visible church. Uh, we have to go back to prior to sin because the church, although sin is right. not absent in the church, the, the church should operate as close to the way Eden should have operated as we possibly can. Um, and the reasoning for that is that the church is kind of a foretaste of heaven, especially on the Lord's day. And, and in heaven, we're going to be in a situation that's an elevation of what was going on in Eden, but fundamentally uh, is, is an arrangement that is similar to Eden in terms of how we interact with each other and how we interact with God. And so I'm going to go to chapter two, verse 15. Um, and so, you know, uh, Adam has been created from the dust. Um, and then, uh, he, he comes to the garden, God comes to the garden and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. So Adam is put in the garden. He's given a task. Part of that task we learn from chapter one is to be fruitful and multiply, right? So then he says, um, Going on to verse 18, it says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And then uh, God kind of parades all the animals in front of in front of Adam. Uh, at the end uh, of this sort of section, it says that nothing was found among the animals uh, that was a, f- a helper fit for him. So God puts Adam to sleep. He takes the woman out of the side of the man, right? The the Sometimes we read rib, but it's really more accurate to say taken from the side of the man. And then Adam wakes up and there's this corresponding helper, this corresponding uh, mate for him. And he recognizes that there is this solidarity with this person because of the likeness that they share. But also there's a difference that they have as well. And then I want to go into chapter three here because what happens in the fall, sometimes we think about the fall and we think it's sort of this upheaval or this like flipping over of the created order such that we can't learn anything about the way things were supposed to be from uh, chapter three on. But that really isn't the case. So um, going to verse 16, this is after they've eaten the, the apple. Verse 16 says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain. You shall bring 
bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband or shall be for your husband. Um, that's, I don't think that's a great translation. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree, which I commanded you that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field, so on and so forth. And so what we see in this, these passages is that prior to the fall, Adam was given a task and it's not good for the man to be alone, largely in part because it's not possible for the man to fulfill his role as either the, the priest, the high priest of the garden, or uh, as a father uh, without a helper suitable for him or a corresponding mate for him. Um, and so after the fall, what we see is that the same roles, the same tasks that were given to them are not changed, but they're corrupted by the fall. And I think that the corruption that happens in the fall helps us to see what it is that's changed and what it, the original arrangement was. So in the right. fall, Eve is still, uh, still being tasked with primarily with the child rearing, but child rearing now is no longer a pleasurable thing, but it comes with all sorts of pain and the potential of death. Adam is still tasked with working the ground and cultivating and, and physical labor, but it's no longer going to be easy for him. It's no longer going to uh, produce fruit readily, but now he's going to have to work and scratch out a living. And this little, this little passage here where it says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. A lot of times the egalitarians point to this and they say, well, see here, this, this wasn't what it was like before the fall. So at the fall is when this power dynamic between men and women came into be. So we've got to undo that, but that's not at all what right. the text is presenting, right? It's presenting this situation where previously the woman's desire was for her husband and he would rule over her, but in a positive sense, right? He was still the one who was tasked with keeping and guarding the garden and keeping and guarding is not just a, like, he's not a doorman. It's a, it's a ruling the garden. He's the king of the garden. And his wife is the one who helps him with that task, not in like a subservient manner. She wasn't like his personal assistant, but she helps him in fulfilling that task because without her, the task of guarding and keeping the garden and all that's in it was not possible, nor was the task of, of being fruitful and multiply. So already in the garden and what we see corrupted in the fall, we already have these distinct roles in, in these two major spheres of life, right? We have this distinct roles in the sort of, um, you might call it the economic sphere of life, the, the work of life, the physical tasks of life. But then we right. also have the fact that Adam was tasked as the high priest of the garden, that keep and guard language is language that's only ever repeated in reference to the Levites when they're keeping and guarding the temple. So this, this high priest of the garden, he is the one that was ordained as the high priest, right? The, the woman is never commanded to keep and guard the garden. Adam is commanded to keep and guard the garden. They're both given the task to be fruitful and multiply. So we have to understand that in this original arrangement, there's still these roles and these tasks that need to be respected and need to be understood. The critical word in that passage that you just read is corruption, because you have to understand that that's a very specific use of language there. And of course, you can't have something, corruption doesn't exist unless there is something to corrupt. So it presupposes that there were roles and responsibilities. Exactly that preceded the corruption itself. And therefore that this change that happens 
when the fall occurs does not create new categories. And somehow these new categories are the problem in that where there was no responsibility before or no definition of relational responsibility that now all of a sudden there is as if they were kind of this just amorphous sensibility of Adam and Eve. They were kind of just did the both the same thing and, and had more or less like the same roles and responsibilities. So the idea that it was corrupted is really substantial. The second thing is that if we're talking about men and women before the fall, and if, as I think we're making a good argument, even just logically speaking, that what was corrupted preceded the corruption, and those responsibilities were present, and one of those responsibilities, like you said, was leadership or lordship, lowercase l, in the sense of overseeing, and if, in addition to that, those roles were there and prior to sin entering the world, they were done in a, such a selfless manner because selfishness did not exist, then we also have to conclude that they were done in the most loving way in which there was no pride or power exhibited that benefited the self. Right. And so there must be something inherently loving about them. And, and again, like we can't judge them by the abuse because of what sin has tainted them with, but how God intended them to be. And for me, that goes all the way back even further, if I can, like now I'm trying to Jesus GQ, like all the way back to like Genesis one, yeah, because that's where we have a clear sense. I think, I don't think any Christian would debate that we have men and women being created equally as fellow image bearers of God. That's right. Genesis one, one, like 26, 28. But here's, what's interesting to me. And this, I, I want people to hear me because I, I don't even want, I don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm about to say here, but I am trying to make a somewhat radical statement. That text seems to indicate to me that the image of God shines forth in humanity as male and female. I think we'd agree with that. Yep. Here's the, maybe this sentence that's going to come off a little bit strange. What I'm concluding then is if either all men or all women were suddenly to vanish, the image of God on our planet would not be reduced by 50%. It'd be reduced to zero. Right. And so I think to, to what you were saying, like men and women have strong characteristics physically, uh, socially, physiologically that, that fit into a general mold. And sometimes they exhibit commodities that are a little bit outside that mold. And that's still within God's plan because he has created us both male and female. He himself has both those characteristics. So he's right. our father and explicitly so in the scriptures. Yeah. What's interesting is at the same time, the creation narrative is really not what you would expect if the Bible were an egalitarian book. If that were the case, what you just described there, the opening to that whole passage, you would probably expect men and women were to be created together, naming each other or being named both by God at the same time, each sharing various roles. But it's almost as if God goes out of his way to show that there's a distinction. Even in the creative process itself, this is his pattern. This is what he wants us to know. So yeah. there, there's just so much meat there. You're right. So much meat that's not on a bone for us to chew on <laughs> that I think we just brush by those things. Yeah. We just kind of take for granted. Well, yes, God created us all, all equally without saying like, here is the orig- all of the origin of God's plan. But even in doing so, it doesn't seem that he leaves much space for an egalitarian system. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So... Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to say more, or if you were just going to be like, and here's some more scripture. Yeah. I'm all thrown off because our video is not working. So I'm, I'm like really kind of out of it right now. So hopefully you guys can't hear that, but we'll move on to some more scripture. So uh, I want to go take a look at judges. Cause the other passage that I think the egalitarian um, camp 
looks at uh, and uses in an improper sense is the, the section here that talks about Deborah. So the, the common way that this passage or this section gets used is basically, look, here's an example of a woman leader in the Bible who right. is serving in a, a role that you say apparently they can't serve in. And I think that the, the complementarian camp often throws back Kind of this idea that like, well, look, Barak was uh, he was judged because he refused to step up. I'm not sure that's actually what's going on in the passage either. So Agreed. this is chapter four of um, of Judges, starting in verse four. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out a Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. So the way that this gets used by complementarians, as I said, is they clue in on this uh, verse, on, on verse 9 here, where Deborah says, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get glory because God's going to give Sisera into the hand of a woman. And they right. the way that I always hear this is basically they say, yeah, Deborah was leading the army, but Barak should have been. And it's clear that God's judging him for doing that. But that's not at all what the text presents. So Barak is clearly the leader of this army through the whole section here. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly how to explain that, except for the Lord had ordained for, the, for Jael to... It's not Jael in this one, is it? Yeah, it is Jael. For yes. Jael to be the one that kills him, um, I, I don't know why he chose that, but it, it, there's nothing in the text that presents this as a curse. It's not like Deborah says, well, you refuse to take leadership, so God's going to have a woman do it, which is one of the ways that complementarians justify it. But paradoxically, it's also one of the ways that egalitarians, sort of soft egalitarians say, well, if there was enough men in the church stepping up, then women won't have to do it. Um, that's also not what the text says, but also it doesn't present Deborah as though she's leading the army. She's not serving as a priest. She's not the leader of Israel, right? Judge and King are not the same thing. Judge is not right. a formal office of any sort. It's, it's people who are called for a particular task at a particular time that often involves leadership, but sometimes it doesn't really involve leadership either. And one thing about the book of Judges is that throughout the book of Judges, things get progressively worse. The judges are not supposed to be held up for us as examples, with possibly the exception of the very first judge. From that point forward, each judge gets progressively worse, progressively worse, progressively worse. So we're not supposed to look at the judges and think, wow, we should be like them. We're supposed to look at the judges and think, man, Israel was still going downhill at this point. So right. we have to be really cautious in this. Um, and like I said, the office, office in quotation marks of judge 
wasn't even an office. Um, if it was an official office, we would expect somehow Christ to have reference to it like he does with prophet, priest, and king. But we got to really get outside of this, and both sides use this text wrong. Instead, what I see happening is there's a woman who's called of God for a particular task, and what does she do? She doesn't go and raise an army herself. She doesn't act like the king of Israel. She goes and she delivers the message to the man that that the Lord has appointed to serve in this role. And then that man does it. But he still kind of says like, well, I want you to come with me. Maybe that was the right thing. Maybe it wasn't. The text doesn't really indicate that he's being punished for uh, the lack of of, uh, leadership or whatever. But what it does say is that the road will not lead to glory for Barak because the Lord is going to sell out Sisera into the hand of a woman. So this is more like saying, Barak, you're not going to get the glory. Instead, God is going to do this in a way that no one expects. And so only God gets the glory, which is is the point of this narrative. So I just think we have to get past sort of the surface level back and forth, um, like cheap shots that complementarians and egalitarians take at each other and actually take a look at these texts. I mean, this is an argument for being critical and discerning when we approach texts like this and not create them or take them out of context or proof text them too much. Because I totally agree with what you're saying there. There's understanding the culture of that time in particular. You're looking at a people group, these women, who are among the most powerless. So that's what God is going to say. Like the deliverance is going to come in a really radical, surprising, unexpected way, such that it's going to be clear that I've orchestrated the means by which this victory comes. It's definitely not Deborah being like, well, because you didn't man up. God is going to judge this entire situation as if I kind of belittle you by using a woman. That's not at all what's happening here. And we have to kind of zoom out a little bit and take this passage and interpret it in light of the broader context where God gives a clear complementarian pattern in authorizing and administering leadership in both the Old and the New Testaments. So I think we both agree, like throughout the Bible, both men and women play a vital role in the life of God's people. But in both the Old and the New Testament, God establishes a pattern, which I think is very, very much on the face, in which the office, the, the official office of the highest authority and leadership was held by only men. Throughout the Old Testament, there are times like this where women could serve as prophets, which was like this occasional diverse ad hoc institution, but only males could serve as the Levitical priests, right. which was the regular ongoing office of leadership among God's people. And then, of course, to draw the obvious line into the New Testament from the Old, we have the Gospels in which Jesus makes only male apostles, right. this, this inner 12. And we could say like, well, why didn't he split the group? Why didn't do nine women? And, you know, like we could go through all these like kind of counterfactual worlds. And sometimes I think egalitarians like to respond that Jesus was adapting to the culture. Right. But I ask, is that really possible? I mean, Jesus was not afraid to challenge the culture. I mean, yeah. that, that was actually his jam. Yeah. And so he did that all the time. So is it really possible that Jesus would challenge the culture of his day as radically as he did but just capitulate in this particular area. So I I was kind of like a little bit outside the bounds of where you were going with that judges passage, but there is this broader scope and pattern that we get. And so we have to be careful, like you said, not taking this as like a proof text and saying, well, see, this proves everything. Either one way or the other, it's interesting that both groups use this particular passage. There's something broader here that we need to dissect. But I love what you're saying because it's kind of getting to the heart of the matter. And that is in all interpretation of scripture to be really critical about the context about what's being said here and to recognize that in that passage, what's so funny is both groups, including maybe us sometimes, 
we want to read ourselves into that. We so badly want to eisegete and say, see, this proves what that, that I'm right, that this either draws gender lines or removes them altogether. Yeah. When it's exactly what you said, and that is the, the intent of that passage is so, look how God will bring deliverance. Look how God will provide a way when everything else fails, even the leaders that he has put in place when they fail. Here we have God's faithfulness to deliver out of his own glory from his own power in ways that are surprising and radical. Where there is weakness, here we see God's strength manifested all the stronger. Yeah. And I think, you know, one more thought before we move on to the next passage is um, it's funny if you look at the song of Deborah and Barak in the next chapter or Barak in the next chapter, um, Deborah reflecting on her role in this doesn't paint herself as the victorious leader of this army. What she right. says is I arose as a mother in Israel. So she, she is self-consciously portraying her role in this in characteristically feminine ways. So she, she's self-identified, right? Exactly. She doesn't. And, and who are we to question her own self-identification? Um, she doesn't come forward and say, you know, that man didn't do his job. So I stepped up and took care of it. Like she comes forward and says, I nurtured Israel like a mother when when their villages started to cease, when they started wandering into idolatry. I came along and I as a mother, I, I rose to them. So we have to like I've said it so many times, these really like straightforward um like cheap shots that people take where they pull out one verse. They're like, see, look, uh, Barak's not going to get the glory because he, he wouldn't man up. Like read the whole passage. Barak is painted in very positive light in, in the whole, uh, the song that's sung, the people paint him in a positive light. Everything about the interaction is painted in a positive light. So we, we have, this is what happens when you bring your presuppositions to the text and you're using the text to try to prove your point rather than letting the text speak to the question on its own terms. So that's really what we need to get Amen. to. Amen. Do you have any passages you want to look at? Well, so since we're kind of getting near the end anyway, we should probably just Briefly, you want to talk a little bit about Ephesians 5, just real quick, since obviously that's the one lots of people want to go to on this? Sure. Is that cool? I mean, you probably can't say no because it's still the scriptures. So It's true. Why don't you go ahead and read that if you got it in front of you? I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> Boom. I didn't know whether you did or not because I can't see you. I, I, do, I do not have it in front of me, but do you, can you pull it up real quick? I can. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 5, and I'm going to start in uh, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of every reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the 
the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh man, that is just so good, isn't it? Like that, what an amazing passage. That's like just super tasty. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and one more thought um, before we, before you unpack that for us, I'm not going to read it, <laughs> but it's important yeah. to note that it doesn't stop there. So immediately following right. this, there's instruction for children to obey their parents, for bond servants to obey their masters, and then for masters to be kind and gracious to their servants. So it's important to put that in its whole context, that this is not just, hey, Husbands and wives behave this way. This is a comprehensive vision for how all Christianity is supposed to interact with itself, with the people right. within it. Right, right on. And we could spend a whole episode and many hours talking about this, and I wish we had that time. But let me just say a couple things and also get your reflection on the same thing. And I want to try to stay away from what is kind of maybe cliche about this. But obviously, this particular passage we're getting the sense that marriage, of course, is this institution. It's ordained by God of creation prior to the entrance of sin into the world. And that is weighty in and of itself. And in this passage, there are clearly different roles for male and female in the way marriage is designed to operate. So certainly Christian husbands and wives are to practice mutual submission right. in the way that all Christians are. But when Paul gets more specific about the husband-wife relationship, not all arrows are pointing in both directions. And, right. that, and that's what I kind of really dr- comes out to me like, uh, just by way of kind of a, a cursory summary, there are certain responsibilities that husbands have that wives do not. And there are certain responsibilities that wives have that husbands do not. And at the end of the day, what Paul makes very clear by the power of the Holy Spirit is that gender means something. Diverse roles in gender mean something. And the hallmark, the center, the zenith, whatever you want to call it of this passage is that the meaning of those gender roles, and this is what's profound, I think, are bound up with the gospel. Male, female, husband, wife, Christ, and the church are all somehow integrated in Paul's thinking. That's why he has to say at the end, this mystery is profound. Right. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If we flatten out the differences of role assigned to husband and wife, we are in danger of tampering with this God-ordained institution that pictures and is predicated on the gospel. Yeah. It, we, have to, we can't get this twisted. It's not that gender roles lead us somehow into understanding God better. It's that the gender roles themselves are born out of who God is. And when we mess with that, we mess with our understanding of the image of God into our own immense great peril and danger. And so that's why I want to say like this is a prophetic whisper of not what like just good marriage is like, as if like there's some self-help book out there that could be benefited from just reading this passage and understanding it. No, it, this is a prophetic whisper of what it means for uh, to understand Christ and his church, this bride. So there's so much more that could be said. But for me, what I want to emphasize is this being bound up in the gospel and so it's, it's not as if like we can strip away the identity of male and female, blur these lines of demarcation and be safe. We're actually messing with something that I think we don't even realize. We're, we're literally playing with fire in this grand forest of tinder, and we don't even realize it. And that's the danger I'm worried about in this, in this broader conversation. Yeah. Is it okay if I uh, geek Greek out a little bit? 
Of course. I wish you would. So one of the things that I think we have to um, be cautious of is our English translations, right? I've said before that I understand that it's not reasonable for me to expect every Christian to learn Greek, but it is incumbent on every Christian to recognize that the Bible is not written in English, and sometimes we have to question the translators. So um, one of the things that happens in Greek uh, that you can't quite see in English is that a lot of times um, verbs that are not really their own verb, they get tacked on to another verb. So the, the classic example is uh, the Great Commission, right? The only actual verb in that sentence is disciple, right? So you, it's right. as you go or while you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And so the word uh, going, uh, baptizing and teaching, those are all words that uh, that tell you how you, how it is that you make disciples, right? They're they're t- they're participles of attendant means is the technical language, and we have the same thing happening in this passage. So if you go back to verse eighteen, it says, "Do not get drunk with wine." So there's a prohibition for that is debauchery. There's a reason for the prohibition, but be filled with the Spirit. And then every verb you see in verse 19 and 20 and 21 is an attendant verb, an attendant participle of means. So the way that you are filled with the Spirit is that you address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right. And you're filled with the Spirit by singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And then verse 20, you are filled with the Spirit by giving thanks always and for everything. And then you are filled with the Spirit by submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. So all of this has to do with our gratitude and our unity in the spirit. And then when you get to verse 22, this is what's, this is where I think our, we need to understand something about our English translations. Verse 22 in English says, wives submit to your own husbands. But in Greek, it literally just says wives to your own husbands. So it's further clarifying what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the the, the challenge with this, and, and that would go through, I haven't looked at the Greek for all of the other, you know, children to your own parents and masters and bondservants. I haven't gone through all that yet. But we have to recognize that on one hand, you have the complementarians who want to say that the submission of the wife to her husband is of a radically different class than the submission of a husband to the wife. They probably wouldn't even like you to speak that way. But the same, not not just the same repeated verb, but the exact same verb, the singular word is what's yes. governing this. So wives... Submit to your own husbands is really saying, wives, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, do that to your own husbands. And then it's husbands, as you love your wives, do that in this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there really is this mutual self-submission that happens in not just in light of marriage, in light of the gospel itself. And that's where I want to close this out here is that we started this episode by talking about sort of this woke church church phenomena that is is really about uh it's not about resolving power indifferences it's about restoring or compensating for power indifferences and the way that we have to do that right now is that the elevated class of of rich white guys needs to be brought down a notch so the other classes that have been historically oppressed can be brought up a notch and it's still about not submitting to one another 
right? So then we come to Beth Moore, who's saying, if you think that submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ means that women can't preach, then I'd be terrified to sit in your congregation. That's just fear-mongering rhetoric. It's not biblical exegesis at all. And so we have this clearly laid out in the scriptures that there is this mutual self-submission that all Christians are to have one to another. And then Paul starts to go into examples. The way you do that in a family is that wives submit to their husbands. They love their husbands. Husbands respect and care for their wives. They protect them. They give their lives for them. Children obey their parents. Parents don't exacerbate their children. Bond servants don't disobey their masters, but masters are kind and gracious to their to their servants. So we have these relationships. And this is where the, the complementarian um, argument goes awry on this, is they want to treat wives submitting to their husbands as a very different kind of submission than all of the other categories that are going on. And they want to deny nice. the mutuality of that. But on the flip side, egalitarians want to say that this submission is completely illusory. It just has to do with uh, it just has to do with the context of the day. Well, does that mean that children don't have to obey their parents anymore or that employers don't have to be kind to their employees anymore? I mean, that's where the logic goes. So we just like I said, the the central message of this episode is that we have to go back to the scriptures. We have to let them answer our question about how relationships between men and women work on its own terms and in its own voice. And we have to do that without allowing our presuppositions as much as we're able to color how we come to this. Because if we come to this using the scripture to prove an argument rather than letting the scripture answer the question we're asking, we've already lost right off the gate. Right. Well said. And let me, as we close, just throw out another tool that I would affirm that might be helpful that I think goes right along with what you said. And that is, I wish that everybody, including myself, knew a lot more Greek, but in the absence of being able to do that, a great tool that would be perfect for this kind of discussion and getting deeper in the scripture on this particular issue would be looking at a translation like the New American Standard Version. And a great place to do that is this relatively new site called literalword.com. And the reason I'm recommending it in light of what you just said is if you look up in the NASB, this particular passage, Ephesians 5.22, what's nice about the NASB is because it's such a literal translation, it puts any words that are not in the original Greek or Hebrew in italics in English so that you can tell that they might be implied, but they're not actually in that particular version, like in a literal sense. And so if you look at verse 22 and you take out the italicized words, it literally reads, literally, wives to your own husbands as the Lord, as you said. And then verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives to their husbands and everything. So this is a great way to kind of get a sense for what you were talking about without being a Greek expert. This is a wonderful translation to help you understand what words are actually present. And these words, as all words do matter, but definitely in this case where there's been a lot of confusion about these. So I would encourage everybody to get the the application, which is called Literal Word. And also they have a wonderful website, just literalword.com. Yeah. Yeah, well, I know we usually close out with some spiritual conferencing, but we're already well past the mark. So I think we're going to skip that tonight. Jesse, I have some bad news before we close out, though. You waited until now to bring this up? I did. So I didn't want to put a downer on our whole episode, but the results for our final round of the the podcast tournament came out today. Oh, and no. And we, we lost to the BAR podcast. Oh. But the good news is that means officially we are uh, at, the, at the least the eighth most popular uh, reformed podcast on the internet. I think I that's how statistics work, isn't it? 
recount. Yeah, no, no. We're we're the number eight. We're we're the number eight reform podcast on the internet. Is is how in this the works. world in the world? That's how this works, right? In this <laughs> I think totally so. scientific, uh, yes. utterly scientific thing. It actually is turning out to be the Apologia Church Bowl because uh, <laughs> it was Sheologians. <laughs> And Apologia Church and the dividing line that were in uh, all like in the last uh, in the last eight here. And then there was like White Horse Inn and like a couple others. So nice. I'm honored to have made it as far as we did. We have the best listeners. They came out in force. For uh, sure. There just was more of them than there were of us. So it's and all good, here, though. Here's why I'm not uh, particularly upset. One, it's great to be honored among such a wonderful group of brothers and sisters and to this very moment, I'm getting a sweet foot massage underneath my desk. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I don't know how to follow that. I don't know what to do with that. We can't. We got to shut this thing down. Shut it right down, now. Jesse. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.